But again, it gets back to this thing that God's looking for, right? He's looking for justice. And justice in a, in a biblical sense isn't somebody going to jail for their crimes. It is the inbreaking of peace into a society. And by peace, I mean the flourishing of every individual. Everyone becomes what they are to be. So everyone finds their role, their gift, their place, and they fulfill it joyfully for the sake of the other. And that becomes this mirror of the Trinitarian community. And it's what God it's what pleases God because that's his, that's his heart. That's his essence, right? It's this, it's this love. It's this giving of self into the other. And so the city becomes an expansion of that fellowship, the, the community. But if we are in this community, what we also have the opportunity to do is to exploit. Mm-hmm. And that is what we unfortunately default to. And God, because of his nature, it finds that repugnant. He's not going to tolerate it forever. You know, he's going to cut it down. Welcome, everyone, to the Faith Recovery Podcast, where we are seeking to recover faith by recovering the faith. And we've been seeking to recover the faith by looking through the Old Testament. We're in a series called According to Scripture. I think this might be episode 19. This would be episode 20, but yeah. the last time we tried to record episode 19, we didn't record. Yeah. So here we go again. You know, it happens. Technical yeah. difficulties happen. Uh, today's episode, The Fruitful Vine. Israel as fruit producer and Jesus as the true vine. Mm-hmm. Scripture depicts the nation of Israel and Jerusalem in particular as a vine meant to produce fruit for God. Okay. Through her history, focus on the trellis, the political and cultic institutions caused her to fail to produce anything but bad grapes. Time and again, God had to cut down the vine and start over. All right. Finally, Israel and Jerusalem would be overthrown by Rome in 70 AD but not before God would plant his true vine in the wilderness where it would perennially grow and produce the kind of fruit he desires. Okay, so we're looking at this idea of the vine, which is a New Testament idea for many Christians. They think of John 15, the vine, I am the vine, you're the branches. But you're going to say, actually, this is a biblical theme running throughout. And and when it's referenced in the New Testament, it's alluding to the Old Testament. True story. Okay. All right. All right. All right. Yeah. Let's do this. Yeah. Hey. Well, you you got you got me thinking now. You done went and did it, didn't you? So uh, you know we talk about the vine and stuff like that in the vineyard, um, and Jesus and Matthew. He's uh, calling out the Pharisees and the religious leaders of his day, and you know he tells them this allegory. I guess I don't know. I guess it's a parable. Um, about the tenants in the vineyard, Matthew 21, 33, I don't know, through 46. Okay, okay. Matthew 22, 33 through 46. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. 
Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to the other tenants, to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Amen. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. So, uh, and bummer for them, but I love that last bit. Um, <clears throat> so Jesus is, is like, let me tell you a story, you know, just about an unrelated story. I know about this vineyard, you know. Um, and as these leaders who probably had the, you know, the Tanakh, the, the Hebrew scriptures memorized a lot at large portions of it, they would have gotten the reference. Um, and so maybe let's look for the reference here. It says in, here in uh, verse 45, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. Yeah, right. So, and they didn't like it. They didn't think it was great. Right. Um, they looked for a way to arrest him. Right. They were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. Right. So Isaiah chapter five is a is a good one um, where, you know, he talks about this this vineyard and it's very similar language to what Jesus uses in 21. So I have to scroll it. In. There we go. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judea, Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel and the people of Judah. And the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed. For righteousness, but heard cries of distress. Yep. Sound familiar? Uh, it sounds like the nation of Israel today. Yeah, <laughs> true story. Yeah, but you know, Jesus he adds a lot of details. You know, there was a landowner. He planted a vineyard. He dug. A, he put a wall around it. He dug a uh, wine press in it. He built a watchtower. Is that, you know, that language? These oh, yeah. are tabs. These yeah. are keys. You know, uh, Jesus is like. You remember in the days of Isaiah? Right. He's. You remember what happened? Alluding to Isaiah five. Yeah. Right. And uh, not just Isaiah 5, but several other places. But uh, Judea or Judah and Jerusalem are this vineyard, this, um, this, I guess, structure that God is, you know, he's planted. He's looking for good grapes. Yeah. And and instead of bearing uh, good grapes and instead of bearing no grapes, uh, they bore bad grapes. So, mm -hmm. you know, what mm -hmm. do you do when this um, city, this civilization is not only not producing the fruit that you want, but is producing things that are that are negative, that are malignant. Um, 
And and so how do you resolve that? God says, I'm gonna gonna cut it back. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna tear down the wall. I'm gonna I'm just gonna um, cut it down. And so and we know that that was in the form of uh, conquest by the foreign nations. And so it would be in Jesus' day as Jesus is standing there preaching, say around I don't know twenty six twenty seven A.D. And, you know, Rome is, the wars with the Jews are going to start in 66. They'll culminate with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70. And so, you know, they're on the eve of their own destruction. Mm-hmm. And Jesus is, is, is calling to mind these things. He's saying that, you know, God has come. He's come to get what's his, right? And the people are like, they don't want to give it up. Um, they don't want to offer over these good grapes, this harvest. Um, and generally that happens when, uh, leaders kind of become overgrown. They begin to not see themselves as the stewards of a thing, but as the owners. And so they want to set the agenda. They want to protect their, um, assets what they see is their assets out of this religious system. And we see it in John um, chapter 11 when Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. And now his popularity, at least in the book of John, is reaching its zenith. It's really on the eve of his Passion Week. Um, and so all of this buzz is, is spreading after Lazarus's resurrection from the dead. And uh, word gets back right um where it gets back to the the uh, the Jewish leaders the the Pharisees in Jerusalem and uh we take up in what verse 45 uh, John, John 11 45 yeah. John 11 45 okay John 11 verse 45 therefore many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin what are we accomplishing they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Okay, so give me the dynamics here, Ken. What's happening? Uh, Well, Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead, so this is an extraordinary miracle. People are believing in him. He's drawing a lot of attention to himself. The Jewish leaders are threatened by him. He's becoming maybe more influential. They're afraid they might lose their influence. And then I suppose they're also afraid they might get in trouble with the Romans. Maybe this would lead to a revolt or something. Right. Yeah. So there's concern over lots of things, right? They're kind of, they see themselves as over a barrel and they see that they're they're the good guys, right? They're protecting the nation from this upstart, this guy who's threatening it. Uh, How ironic, you know, but how similar that is, I think. Uh, Those dynamics just play out again and again as we begin to see ourselves as the ones who are responsible for fulfilling God's will or bringing justice about, and we're going to make an omelet and we've got to break some eggs. 
And in this case, it just so happened that one of those eggs was the son of God, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and, and so it shows that how corrupt and distorted, twisted we can become on an institutional level as we think that we're bringing justice about, let's say. Mm-hmm. You know, we look at the Romans and we say, well, they certainly can't win. We can't let them win. So we're going to have to, you know, appease them or something, because if we're not here to mitigate their influence, then the people won't have this temple to come to. They won't be able to keep kosher. Uh, so much is at stake, in, and we are responsible to ensure that it's okay. And that sounds so enticing, you know, and yet it's so dangerous because what happens is that uh, when we think like that, we're not just inert. We aren't just benign sitting there. We are advancing an agenda, and that agenda that we think is justice becomes oppression. Um, And so as these guys, you know, notice that they begin by looking at each other and asking, what are we accomplishing? Mm Mm-hmm. That's a dangerous moment. Um, mm-hmm. And I know that it go- runs counter to our culture and everything because we all are performance-based. It's America. What are you mm-hmm. accomplishing? Prove mm-hmm. your worth. And not that we aren't supposed to be about doing a thing, but if we focus on obedience and faithfulness and leave the accomplishments to God, then we're a lot safer than if we set out to accomplish a thing and we're going to get there no matter mm-hmm. what. Mm-hmm. And so that's, it, it's scary because those dynamics are very much alive in church, are they not? If you want to build successful church, you really need to show your accomplishments to your congregation. Um, you need to be able to say, here's what we together, through your generous giving and volunteer participation, are accomplishing. If you can't do that, then you're not going to have anybody there. Um, And so we're kind of all enamored with this sense that if we build some sort of a structure, some sort of a hierarchy, a leadership, uh, an organization, whatever, that that we use that as some grander vehicle that will accomplish good in the world. And so all of that sounds so, you know, axiomatically good that that to critique it um, sounds dangerous and harmful and wrong but in their case it actually led to the crucifixion of jesus right so your point is that they can mean well as far as their concern as their as far as their intentions go um, but it actually caused them to fail to see god in their midst right you know that old saying the road to hell leads uh you know is uh what paid with good intentions Mm -hmm. um and i've always thought that meant Intentions unfulfilled. Like, you know, you, you keep telling yourself you're going to do better, you're going to repent, and that's how you, that's the road to hell. But I think the road to hell on earth is good intentions fulfilled. <laughs> mm-hmm. When we are not living with reference to God and we set out to um, have this just cause, and now we are capable of doing all kinds of harm in service of that just cause. You know, I, I think the communist revolutions of the 20th century, these people were not, they were not bad people. They were probably some of the better people in terms of having a concern for the overall well-being of their fellow man. Yeah, that, I think that's how they started. I don't think people went in there and, and risked their life and jail and uh, death in order to make the world a, a worse place or because they were particularly greedy 
I think they want, they had a vision of a utopian world that they wanted to see come about. And a lot of that was probably born out of compassion, watching their peers suffer, um, being marginalized and doing without while others, um, you know, benefited. And, and so they were, they wanted to correct what was wrong. That speaks to me as somebody who is a good person, right, at, at their base. And yet, you know, someone like uh, Joseph Stalin can order the deaths of millions of people. Um, Mao Zedong is, uh, you know, another one just ready to allow a third of the population of China to die of starvation for the good of the whole. You know, that there's a lot of, uh, and, and so this, this idea, like, so God, I think, has instituted the city, right? And we talked, uh, well, we didn't talk last time. We talked last time. You guys didn't hear it. <laughs> uh, so we started it in a garden, right? But in Revelation, we end up in a city. And um, Isaiah speaks of Jerusalem and Judah as the vine. So there's this city that God is, has in mind that he's built, that he wants to see. And the city is, is the context where just justice can, can be born and grow. And that's what God wants, right? He wants the just society. He wants the city of God. Yes, yeah, Augustine, right? Uh-huh. And, uh, and so he, that's, what, that's what he's looking for. A lot of times we ask the question about the fruit, you know, is, it, is fruit more people? Is fruit the product of evangelism? Or is fruit a Christian character uh, the product of, say, discipling, discipleship? And the answer is yes, um, because the more people you have and the wider population you have, the greater diversity in the group, the more opportunities for justice to be born. The more Philemon's who accept Onesimus home, you know, so Onesimus is a slave of this householder Philemon. Philemon was all obviously uh, wealthy enough to have slaves and to have a house that was large enough for the church to meet in. Okay. So a lot of times, you know, we, we talk about the house church movement and stuff. And, um, I think Brandon O'Brien pointed out in his book, um, uh, was strategically small church. He, he talked about how, um, average, the average church in America is 80 people. Um, and he said, that's about how many people would have fit in a Roman, you know, in one of these Roman hacienda kind of houses, you know, the, um, so this is a large home that somebody has with a big open area, a big plaza area where the church met. So Philemon's well-to-do. He is a householder, landowner, owns slaves. Onesimus has run away. Somehow he found Paul in Rome, came to Christ, um, and Paul sends him back with this letter like, hey, I know you can kill this guy, but don't. He's your brother in Christ, right? Uh, and, and so there's this call for Philemon to now accept Onesimus back, not as a slave, but as a brother. So it's a big, it's a big leap, right? Here's somebody who's a criminal, should be facing justice, uh, perhaps even capital, a capital crime. Um, and now he's being expected not only to accept this guy back, but to accept him as a brother. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, I know a lot of people critique uh, the Bible's treatment of slavery, but within the gospel it you know are sown the seeds 
of liberation on a very deep level. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, as a socioeconomic structure, it just couldn't go away overnight. It was certainly different from African slavery in America. You know, the, a lot of people had sold themselves into slavery, indentured servitude. It was the only way they could feed themselves. Um, and so doing away with the institution itself wasn't realistic. And yet on a very personal individual level that the slavery's demise was assured, I think, by the in, inbreaking of the gospel. But again, it gets back to this thing that God's looking for, right? He's looking for justice. And justice in a, in a biblical sense isn't somebody going to jail for their crimes, it is the inbreaking of peace into a society. And by peace, I mean the flourishing of every individual. Everyone becomes what they are to be. So everyone finds their role, their gift, their place, and they fulfill it joyfully for the sake of the other. And that becomes this mirror of the Trinitarian community. And it's what God it's what pleases God because that's his, that's his heart. That's his essence, right? It's this, it's this love. It's this giving of self into the other. And so the city becomes an expansion of that fellowship, the, the community. But if we are in this community, what we also have the opportunity to do is to exploit. Mm-hmm. And that is what we unfortunately default to. And God, because of his nature, it finds that repugnant. He's not going to tolerate it forever. You know, he's going to cut it down. So um, Hosea chapter 10 uh, speaks of this as well, but it really weaves together. Um, notice what I did with our divine weaving. Okay, anyway, mm-hmm. uh, so it weaves together the this notion of... of reliance on the institutions as opposed to reliance on God um, and to, you know, human forces that, that we are manipulating. And, and it, it takes those and, and, and kind of weaves them around this notion of the vine in Hosea 10. So Okay. I, Israel was a spreading vine. He brought forth fruit for himself. As his fruit increased, he built more altars. As his land prospered, he adorned his sacred stones. Possibly a reference to idolatry. Yeah. Their heart is deceitful, and now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will demolish their altars and destroy their sacred stones. Then they will say, "We have no king because we did not revere the Lord." But if we had, but even if we had a king, what could he do for us? They make many promises take false oaths and make agreements. Therefore, lawsuits spring up like poisonous weeds in a plowed field. That's probably good. Well, yeah, that's probably good. Uh, Notice that there are two elements here to um, the problem. And um, one is that there's a political element. And the other is a religious element. Um, And so... There's the, God's going to tear down these altars, but then they say we have no king, and if we did have one, you know, he couldn't help us. We see later that one of the main issues is that they've been making these alliances with these foreign powers uh, as we get down Mm -hmm. to um, a little bit farther. So you have idolatrous priests, and then you have um, all of this, these alliances, and he says these things are growing up like thorns and thistles, and 
and so God's going to, to tear it all down, right? Uh, he's, got a, he's got a real problem with it. Now, a lot of times we, we uh, if you're very familiar with the book of Hosea, then, you're, then you know that uh, it starts out with the prophet, you know, God commanding the prophet to marry this promiscuous woman, this prostitute, whatever, you know, she was. And, and that, that's a picture of God with his nation, with Israel, that there's an unfaithfulness right there. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of times we read that and we think, well, this is a story about how tolerant and loving God is, how forbearing and forgiving he is, despite our unfaithfulness. And maybe there's some of that in there. But I think that the primary purpose of all of that was to show how God deals with, um, how do I say this better? I don't know. Uh, bastards in his vineyard in mm-hmm. his house mm-hmm. so if so this this vine metaphor uh and there's a progeny metaphor right that god is he's marrying israel and there's mm-hmm. a fruitfulness there mm-hmm. too right he wants godly offspring right and just as these bad grapes are coming and the only way to get rid of the bad grapes is to cut the vine down so if He's married an unfaithful woman, and she begins to syncretize, you know. So she's not just abandoning uh, the law and her identity through Moses and Abraham. She's she's commingling it with the nations, with these foreign alliances, with these this trust in political power and uh, this reliance on their religious, their cultic elements. So we, you know, they, they're going to build these altars. They're going to adorn this stone. You know, we, when people, people are trying to get God to do what they want, mm-hmm. you know, th- there tends to be uh, a real emphasis on ritual. Mm-hmm. And they, they just tend to almost become superstitious, or they do become superstitious, even in the Christian church. You know, did you say it the right way? Did you call on the right thing? I mean, I've known people who... Um, who thought it was wrong to call on Jesus because Jesus is this transliteration from the original name Yeshua, mm-hmm. you know, that somehow uh, that Jesus is going to withhold his love, his favor, because you're calling him that, you know, mm-hmm. he's just standing there ignoring you until you come up with the right phonetics, and then he's going to turn and attend to you. That is somebody who is very concerned about getting God to do what he wants um, and less concerned about doing what God wants, mm-hmm. you know, that the, you want to find the spell, you know, mm-hmm. the right wording or whatever. And that's what, what we tend to do when we begin to count on the kind of cultic elements of our religion as opposed to just true repentance and submission to God. Um, and that's what they were doing in Hosea. So where God had given this structure, this religious structure to point people to him, they had taken it and they'd begun to use it to that became the focus, just as when Jesus comes later, and here's their God. He's right there in their midst, and they're like, don't bother us. We're busy with the temple. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and so that, that kind of a thing happened. And so there's this, um, this uh, adulteration, literally, of what God wants to see produced. So it's not just that Israel is unfaithful. Obviously, God's a jealous God and all of that. Um, he doesn't want us to attend to other gods, but the problem is, is that when we do, we produce children. We produce variants of his, um, of his city, of his structure, and those children uh, become the problem. 
because they're there saying, hey, Yahweh's my father, you know, and God's like, you ain't my kid. And and that's an issue. I think what people miss about um, the importance of marital fidelity, especially in, in a agrarian society, is that, you know, you don't want your wife to cheat on you because obviously that would hurt your feelings. Um, but also because she might have a child that's not yours and then you won't know it. And then that kid is going to inherit your estate. Mm -hmm. And so some other man's child is going to inherit your estate. A lot is on the line. And that is the image behind Hosea. And so uh, when we look at Hosea 2, uh, what we find is this, this kind of a mix of this adultery metaphor, but also of the vine metaphor. But then there's also a little bit of a hope um, at the end of this rebuke. So Hosea chapter 2, verse 2, and uh, we'll just go on through probably 14 or 15. Okay. Rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. Otherwise, I will strip her naked and make her as bare as on the day she was born. I will make her like a desert, turn her into a parched land, and slay her with thirst. I will not show my love to her children because they are the children of adultery. Their mother has been unfaithful and has conceived them in disgrace. She said, I will go after my lovers who, who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my olive oil and my drink. Therefore, I will block her path with thorn bushes. I will wall her in so that she cannot find her way. She will chase after her lovers, but not catch them. She will look for them, but not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my husband as at first. For then I was better off than now. She has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine and oil, who lavished on her the silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore I will take away my grain when it ripens and my new wine when it is ready. I will take back my wool and my linen intended to cover her naked body. So now I will expose her lewdness before the eyes of her lovers. No one will take her out of my hands." I will stop all her celebrations, her yearly festivals, her new moons, her Sabbath days, all her appointed festivals. I will ruin her vines and her fig trees, which she, she said were her pay from her lovers. I will make them a thicket, and wild animals will devour them. I will punish her for the days she burned incense to the bales. She decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers, but me she forgot." Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards and will make the Valley of Achor a door of hope. There she will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. Amen. Yeah, so that was kind of a lengthy reading, but I think that you see how it transitions from adultery to vineyard metaphor. But also that she's maintaining uh, yearly festivals, new moons, and Sabbath days. This is all from the Mosaic Law alongside um, this Baal worship. Um, and, and so there's a syncretism that's happening. Mm -hmm. And God's taking it all away. He doesn't want it this polluted version of, of his um, religion or the politics. So there's this um, taking away of the... Um, infrastructure, I guess, you know, she's going to be naked. So there's this removal of the wall. All of this is happening. And, and notice that God's solution to this is to go and give her her vine back. He's going to win her back to himself um, after this desolation. 
but he's going to do it in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there is this coming time where the vine itself is going to come back and the vineyards are going to come back, but they're going to come back out in the wilderness. Because, the Valley of Achor. Right. The Valley of Achor is a door of trouble, right? Uh, or the Valley of Trouble is a door of hope. And so going through these hardships, losing the uh, kind of this outer shell that she was counting on uh, is going to be a, a punitive thing, but it's also going to be a redemptive thing that without all of those structures, those institutional structures, without the political standing and the cultic elements, all that will be left will be this devotion to God and to each other, as we know from Isaiah, so that there is this um, harvest that comes to God that's pure, okay? So that's, God's just like, you know, I'm getting rid of all this other stuff. And we'd spoken before about how there's this problem because God needs to be our king um, directly, right? That's what God wanted was just to be our king without a human mediator in between in, in terms of um, somebody like Saul who fell victim to a lot of these same things. But but we also needed a human king because we just didn't respond well to that system, you mm-hmm. know? So God's going to, he's going to give this this new economy where we have the vine we have the vineyard but we don't tend to rely we remain in the wilderness and so we don't rely on our walls and our altars and our alliances we can't do that anymore that's where the vine is going to flourish Hmm. out in the wilderness okay depending on god right yeah Hmm. So uh, Isaiah, or Psalm 80, uh, beginning in verse 8, um, there's this kind of a lament as the nation has fallen into um, the hands of the king of Babylon and everything. But there's also a, a song of, of hope, and it's all surrounding this vine. So this will take us from maybe the Old Testament um, wrath and judgment to the New Testament hope uh, that we have mm-hmm. for this new vine. You transplanted a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it, and it took root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. Its branches reached as far as the sea, its shoots as far as the river. We've been hearing about the river and the sea here Mm -hmm. lately. Why have you broken down its walls so that all who pass by pick its grapes? Boars from the forest ravage it and insects from the fields feed on it. Return to us, God Almighty. Look down from heaven and see. Watch over this vine, the root your right hand has planted, the sun you have raised up for yourself. Your vine is cut down. It is burned with fire. At your rebuke, your people perish. Let your hand rest on the man at your right hand, the son of man you have raised up for yourself. Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us, and we will call on your name. Restore us, Lord God Almighty. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. All right. Yeah. What do you see in there? Well, you know, we recorded this once already, Nathan. So I see. (laughs) Don't tell our secrets. I see something that I didn't, I wouldn't have seen the first time. Yeah. Yeah. You pointed out uh, that suddenly there's this man at God's right hand, this son of man um, that plays a role in restoring the, the vineyard. Right, yeah, and notice that he is—he's um, raised up, 
And uh, if you remember when we talked about the, the bronze serpent and that, that image in a time and again, that the son of man must be raised up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and Jesus uses that language in John again and again. He says, when you've lifted up the son of man, then you will know, you know, uh, that, that whatever I've come from the father. And so uh, this idea, and, and it really throughout the Old Testament, various places, like in Psalm 8, where he talks about what is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you consider him, you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, you've raised him up, right? You've, you've given him glory and honor. So there's this um, this journey that the son of man's taking to from descent to being raised up again. And Jesus plays off of that. Isaiah 52, um, when we begin the servant song there, Toward the end of the chapter, it says that this that this one that this servant that the Lord's right hand, right? He he's got to he's going to be raised up and exalted, and though he was marred and disfigured above above any other person. So there's this exaltation that comes as uh, in part and parcel with um, some sort of abuse and torture and pain, um, and so. Here in Psalm 80, this vine is the son who's raised up, right? And, and he's, uh, he is the man at his right hand, right? So this, this speaks of an individual who is also um, the essence of the vine, who is um, going to be raised up and who is going to be seated at God's right hand. I'm going to go back to verse 14. Watch over this vine, the root your right hand has planted, the sun you have raised up for yourself. So, mm-hmm. so you're pointing out that the vine is suddenly becoming one man, right? the sun yes. that God has raised up. Yeah. Okay, so here's, here's, okay, so this is really demonstrating to me the, that Jesus is alluding to Psalm 80 and the Old Testament theme Mm-hmm. When he says, I am the vine. Right. Yeah. And so he's, and he's been saying throughout in the book of John, he's been saying throughout that I'm going to be raised up, right? I'm the son who's raised up. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when we get to John 15, one, Jesus uh, says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. Mm-hmm. Um, so Ed, just studying through this recently, um, just jumped out at me, I guess, that, you know, if I, if I were going to start with an analogy, uh, I would say, I'm the vine, you're the branches, like he does later on, right, down in uh, verse 5, just kind of setting, you know, the, the images, right? Mm-hmm. I'm the vine, you're the branches, my father's the gardener, um, and now you begin to tell your allegory, right? Mm-hmm. But he begins with, I am the true True vine. vine. Emphasis yeah. on true, yeah, yeah, and and so throughout Israel's history, there's been this this vine image, but throughout there's also been this corruption of the vine. Mm-hmm. You know, God's planting this vine, and and so I would I would say that Jesus has been is saying that look, I'm the I'm the root ball, right? I'm the one that's been there the whole time, mm-hmm. as Jesus, who's the presence, has traveled with Israel out of Egypt, right? And he lived with 
Israel through the judges period as the messenger of Yahweh. Um, and then during the kingly period, he kind of took a back seat. Um, and God's, you know, dealing with Israel through their kings um, appears very rarely, but is still present there. So God, Jesus is there. He's God uh, with us. And, and he was there the whole time. But every time that the, the structure built upon him is being cut back because the people have, have failed. They've syncretized this devotion to God. Mm-hmm. Jesus comes as the very essence of, of devotion to God, where we would break a few eggs to make an omelet. Jesus is ready to just let the omelet go for the sake of the, the eggs. Uh, you know, he, he comes in, and we talked about this a long time ago. You know, Jesus tells his disciples, hey, I'm getting ready to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be killed. Peter's like, no way. Mm-hmm. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And I don't think that he's being hyperbolic there. I think he's that's literally the voice of Satan. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, that says, hey, we've got some good things to do. You're too important to, um, to let go, and uh, whatever happens— you have to, you have to stay, um, and and that mentality is is where we jump off, right? Jesus comes as the true vine, and and he calls us to be in him and to begin to bear this kind of fruit that God has always wanted, um, and is that it's that vine in the wilderness that's going to spread throughout the world. As we talked about, Jesus is the branch. Remember in Zechariah 6. Mm-hmm. And and so he's saying that there's that this here's the one who's called the branch and he will branch out from here and build the temple of God. And then this temple is going to spread throughout the world. Same image here that Jesus is the he's the root ball, he's the base of this vine and this vine just like in Isaiah in Psalm 80 is supposed to spread throughout the world. Um, but according to Hosea, that this that this thing's going to be planted firmly in the wilderness. It's going to be away from the institutional structures that we tend to rely on, and be, that time and again have become the downfall of the people of God. And so I, I think that it, it's a real cautionary tale for anybody who is in religious service that we have to be so very careful that we don't allow the institutions that we've built to become our God. Um, and so that's, I guess that's one application here, you know, is that we have to, uh, as Jesus says, remain in him. Um, and so I guess we should talk about what that, what that means as well, huh? Uh, yeah. I mean, that's, that's, uh, you want to, you want to read John 15? Yeah. Yeah. We'll go down through, I don't know. I mean, it goes through verse 17 we'll stop at verse 8 for now i am the vine i am the true vine and my father is the gardener he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful you are already clean because of the word i have spoken to you remain in me as i also remain in you no branch can bear fruit by itself it must remain in the vine neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. 
If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Yeah. Now let's just go on down through. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. Mm, mm, mm. That's good. Yeah. Uh, so, so much here, so much that we could um, take away. Uh, one thing you need to know about the book of John is is that um, John, the way he records and depicts Jesus, he has a um, kind of an affinity for double entendre. Okay, He likes words that mean multiple things, and he uses them um, very effectively, very intentionally. The word uh, meno in Greek, uh, remain, abide, dwell, live, right? It, it can be translated all of those things. And all of that is meant uh, when Jesus says, remain in me or abide in me. And as I also abide in you. Okay. So to abide is to stay where you are. Okay. That's one connotation. To abide is to live, to dwell. That's another, right? So you have to be, uh, I, I guess we could speak of an inanimate object remaining somewhere, but the assumption of remaining somewhere is its volition, right? That you've chosen to stay, so you're alive. Mm-hmm. Um, so to be, to remain in terms of, uh, to be stationary, let's say, and to, to abide in terms of to live, mm-hmm. right? Jesus says, remain in me, and I, as I also remain in you. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, I don't know if the, if the translators could have picked a better word. I, I'm not sure. I think abide's probably better, but it's probably dated. Um, to remain is, it speaks of being stationary, right? Mm-hmm. But Jesus isn't so much saying, I'm going to be stationary in you. As a matter of fact, there's a bit of contingency there toward the end. You know, if, it's like if you remain in my love, um, I will remain in you. But if not, yeah, I'm out of here. Uh, so that, that this promise to be stationary is not so much uh, emphasized. What is emphasized is that Jesus himself is going to live inside of those who stay in him. Mm-hmm. Okay. So... Why would we not stay in Jesus, and what would cause us to not stay in Jesus? Obviously, the concern is for us is that we would stay in him, not just that we would live in him in, in terms of being alive, but that we would decide to stay within the confines of, of his community, right? So, so there would be pressures yes, to leave him. Right. 
or, or his community or both. Yeah, right. And if, you know, if you look at the Johannine context where John's writing this, you look at the John John's letters. You know, there were people who had left the community. They'd formed their own sect, and John says, "Hey, they were never really a part of us." And you can tell because they left. Mm-hmm. Right. So that that seems to speak very much about this this instruction that if you you stay with him, you stay in the confines of of his discipleship movement of of your association with him, your connection is to him and not to someone else. In Galatians, the uh, Judaizers had come in and Paul says in Galatians 4, he says, these people have, um, they've made much of you, right? That, that they've just been like, oh, what a great thing. Look at you. You know, you pagans, you've, you've seen the light. You've left your idolatry. Isn't that wonderful? Uh, we really want you to be in our community. All you need to do is have an elective surgery. Mm-hmm. And Paul says, they, they've made much of you so that they can cut you off. And he's mm-hmm. using, mm-hmm. you know, this word picture from, from the circumcision. He's saying, look, in, in cutting off that bit of skin, you're cutting yourself off from your direct connection to Jesus, and you're becoming connected to uh, the establishment. Okay, so we know from Acts 13 that the Jewish community in this southern Galatian region was very powerful politically, that they could leverage um, you know, official state-sponsored or at least municipal persecution against the apostles and run them out of town. So here are people who've got, man, they've got opportunities, they've got social support, they've got assets and resources and means, um, you know. And so there's this call that's like, hey, now you can follow Yahweh, but you can have all of the social support and power that you uh, lost when you left your pagan society. Yeah. Uh, and so there, it had to be very enticing. And, and that is what's at play in the Galatian letter. That's why Paul keeps saying, you need to, to be devoted only to Christ, that your capital is not Jerusalem, it's heaven, you know, that, that you need to follow as I do as an apostle, that not from men or by a man, that I, you know, I used to want to please people, and that led me to being a persecutor of the church of God. You know, he, he demonstrates again and again that this desire to be included in an established group becomes in and of itself the thing that leads us away from Jesus. Mm-hmm. And I'm afraid sometimes in church we, we bring people into the group, we just make much of them. A visitor comes in, we're suddenly their best friend. And they're like, wow, this is great. You people love me, you know, and, and now they're all about it. They're big. And there's, okay, well, we just want you to put on this white button-down shirt and this tie. Oh, we can do that. Okay. We also need you to give up coffee. Uh, what? Yeah, just give up coffee. Okay, can I still have energy drinks? Sure. Okay. You know, <laughs> and, and, and the conforming pressure begins to come. And, and now the person is not attached to God or to Jesus. They're attached to the group. Mm-hmm. But we are attached to the group because the group is getting things done. And that's what we want. What we want is to be a part of something that's getting things done. We want to, ironically, bear fruit. Mm-hmm. But the fruit that's born is bad. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, Jesus talks about bearing fruit, and he says, fruit that will last right, or that will remain. Yeah. Fruit that will last, verse 16. Right, yeah. And so the temptation is to pursue something, an agenda, a corporate agenda, as opposed to following Jesus who did all this stuff that was counterproductive. <laughs> following Jesus who laid down his life. Yes. He, he says, that he's talking about fruit, and then he says, this is my command, love each other. Mm-hmm. And prior to that, he says, love each other as I have loved you. Yeah. And he defines that love or describes it to lay down one's life for one's friends. Right. Yeah. The I mean, fruit the, of love, uh, Christ-like love, self-sacrificing love. Right. Yeah. So what we want is justice. And what God wants is justice. But if we aim at justice, we will reap oppression. Because we're, we are implicated. We are indicated. We're a part of the equation. Uh, just like a judge has to recuse himself if he has a conflict of interest from the bench. But we all have conflicts of interest. And if we begin to wield some judiciary power in the lives of other people... Um, at least under the auspices of the kingdom of God, then we begin to um, see that our role is bigger than just loving each other. That we begin to have an agenda, uh, the greater good or whatever. And from that place, we are incapable of just loving somebody because we don't have time. We don't have the resources. Uh, that person's in the way. They're counterproductive. They're weird. Uh, what they did is working against us, and we can't just love and accept them because they're now um, causing harm to our agenda, and so they become our enemy, and we start secretly hating them, and then we start overtly hating them uh, once we have the power to do so. Um, and that's when we stop remaining in Christ. And, and so there's this remaining, but it's not this esoteric, you know, commitment to a um, contemplative life or whatever it is that people understand that to be. I think the emphasis there is for us to stay in him and he will live in us. It's the life of Christ that's reproduced in us that is the fruit. Nothing else. Nothing we do for his sake is the fruit that God wants. God wants the life of of Jesus, his son, reproduced in us in our own context, according to our own gifting, our own background. But this essential self-giving love, this willingness to descend even into oblivion in the faith to for God to raise us back up. And in that, we can love, right? It's that faith that enables this kind of love. And so Jesus is, is he's just saying, look, I've invited you into this atmosphere, this environment of love. If you don't love, then you don't belong in the environment. Yeah? Uh, and so if you go off and, and you want to achieve some great thing, um, and, and you think that it's all for the greater good, but you're actually unwilling to lay yourself down. Then you've, you've left. You've failed to remain. And if you can't, if you're not remaining in me, then, then my life isn't being reproduced in you. I mean, Jesus has is, is told us that 
that the very life that he lived, notice that the way the fruit is born is that ask what you wish and it will be done for you. Prayer. Right. This, this is, is relationship with God, this, this trusting God, asking God, yeah. and receiving from God. Right. And so that's the, that's the call. That's how the, the life is reproduced it, in just uh, representation. As people are looking at us, do they see Jesus? Well, they see him if we are characterized by self-giving love and if God's presence is manifest among us through answers to prayer. That's what it is to remain in him. Now, that requires some waiting, right? That requires just the difficulty of, of sticking it out when it looks like everything's falling apart, when it looks like nothing's happening, um, it when we're just praying and it seems that nothing's coming about, and yet... Jesus says, if you will stay, I will live. And that word abide, meno, is, is, is recaptured in us. But all its full weight, its full sense. He will live through us visibly, demonstrably among us if we just stay here. If we just, if we say, look, we've got one thing on our to-do list and that's love. You know, everything else is contingent. Mm-hmm. Everything else can go. Um, and, and, but if we will just stay here in love, just simply love, um, the rest of it can, can go away. Whatever the world wants to take from us, they can have if he would just live in us. Because, again, notice that he, his promise is that you're going to bear fruit if you will just wait it out. You know, mm-hmm. And that the fruit that you're going to bear is going to last. And that's what's wrong with our agenda from a personal standpoint we go out to build things we want a result from our life we have this existential need to have a result from our having been here right this generativity drive that we have and and yet that drive can become our very undoing our very downfall because we go to pursue it and and let's just say we we do it man that we build some great, some great thing. I mean, think of all of the big ministries that have come up over the years, right? But in the process, we lose ourselves. Think of all the scandal, right? And and all of that. Poor Robbie Zacharias, right? Or I don't know if we should feel sorry for him, uh, but he built a lot, and I think a lot was sacrificed on the altar of his ministry, and yet. And the balance at the end of it all, what is there? You know, does that fruit last at least for him? You know, is this something that is is going to be attached to him in eternity? I, I don't know. Um, but Jesus promises that this, this setting out to love, like Mother Teresa said, we can do no great works. We can only do small things with great love. And I think mm. that was probably a good approach. So the vineyard that God was aiming at all along was this family of believers in whom the life and love of the son is being reproduced. Yeah. That's the vineyard God that's the fruit God's looking for. Yeah. And we're the vineyard mm-hmm. if we're believing in him and it seems like you're describing faith, remaining in him, yeah. trusting him mm-hmm. and then his as you said his 
laying down one's life for one's friends, that's being reproduced in us. His yes. love is being reproduced in us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we didn't we didn't talk about it this time. We talked about it last time. <laughs> Uh, but, but what that's going to require is a willingness to let go of, um, our allegiances to anybody but him. And, and that's the pruning knife. And so, uh, we're running out of time, but when, when he says that, you know, every, he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. Um, so when people are professed to be his disciples and yet they, um, they don't meet him on his terms, then they're cut off. Um, and, and then he says, you're already clean because of the word I've spoken. Uh, we know, uh, at least I think I know, uh, when that happened, uh, that's in John six, where Jesus says, Hey, you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And everybody was like, I'm out. Right. Um, and, and he turns to his disciples and says, don't you want to go? And they say, well, where would we go? You have the words of life. I think that's a moment when they were like, I, you know, I can't be disconnected from you. Mm-hmm. But what they lost, and, and I think what we missed there, is that that was in Capernaum, and most of these guys were from that area. This is their synagogue. This is where their cousins, aunts, and uncles went to church. And that the people who left Jesus on that day in John 6 were um, these guys' religious community, their religious and cultural heritage. And Jesus, uh, the Father, with Jesus' knife, the, the Word, cut them off from their society. So get back to the Galatians. What did the Galatians want? They wanted to be plugged in to a community um, separate and apart from Jesus. So we, we're all connected directly to Jesus, and as we are, then we find ourselves connected or at least adjacent to each other, right? But if we want to, if our allegiance is to the group, then we've already begun to bear bad grapes. Um, we have to always be ready to let Jesus cut us off from our the community that we're relying on. And, and that's a, the strange paradox of it, that each person has to be connected directly to Jesus, as Bonhoeffer said in Life Together, that we that we are only connected to each other through Jesus. Mm-hmm. And that's also what it means to remain in the vine. And Jesus is going to cut off from us any friendships or allegiances that are um, not mediated through him. So... So long as you and I are both connected to Jesus, then we are indirectly connected to each other, right? Um, But once you and I are part of something that's other than Jesus, we form something other than him, and then we stamp his name on it or something, and we act like we belong to him, and he's saying, well, you don't don't belong. Um, And so eventually, you know, his call is going to alienate us, and we will drop off Mm. you know so thanks everyone for listening if you got questions you can always email us discussion at recoverfaith.org we will see you next time